making your way back to your seats, that would be wonderful. Grab your Bibles as you do and uh, head on over to Ecclesiastes. We are going to be in chapter 4 this morning and uh, specifically looking at verses 4 to 6. And what we're going to find this morning is Solomon is going to be begin walking us through uh, three different sections um, that have better than principles to them. Um, and he's going to return to the concept of work, and he's going to begin giving wisdom and principles for how work is, is to be accomplished and what is better than. And so he's going to give us three better than principles, and he's also going to tell us there's three different things that happen that are vanities. And so really we can at that point look at uh, what is a vanity and staying away from that, but then take his better than principle and aim towards that and hopefully glean some wisdom from what Solomon has to say for us. Now, for any of this to make sense and, and really fit within the broader context of Scripture, we've got to go back and think through what our goals are for this series in general. And so the first goal that we have for this entire series is that we may see all areas of life as opportunities to worship Christ. That we may see all areas of life as opportunities to worship Christ. Now secondly, which is really kind of the negative to the first goal, that we may see all areas of life as potential traps in idolatry. And thirdly, that we may see that an abundant life is found in and through Jesus Christ. And that's abundant as he defines it, not as our culture defines it. And so here is the temptation, and here's the potential trap this morning in our text. Because what happens whenever you look at wisdom literature, if you would just take the book of Proverbs for an example, and look at all of what Proverbs has to say, and what all of what Solomon said as he wrote down the book of Proverbs, or even our text this morning, you will perhaps find, perhaps even feel a temptation to think, okay, well then, if those are the principles that help me work better, work smarter, work for a greater return, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just take those principles and apply them to work. And we can find ourselves ignoring what Solomon is trying to communicate in the entire book and the reason why he wrote Ecclesiastes. So let me give this to you, because even if you're a non-believer, principled wisdom still works. It's not 100% guarantee, but it is a principle. So if, if the principle is don't spend more than you make, if you follow that principle, that works. But it never asks the question, why? Well, why shouldn't I spend more than I make? Well, that question's answered from different passages. And so what we're going to see this morning is Solomon is going to walk us through three better than principles as they relate to work. He's going to tell us, look, it's better if you do it this way. It's better if you don't do it that way. And if we're not careful, we could all leave here this morning just thinking, okay, I know how to better have a good day at work tomorrow. And there's an element of truth to that. But if we don't allow those better than principles to be set against and on the backdrop of the broader context of Scripture, then we risk and run the risk of reducing what Solomon has said to us to just principles that may make a difference tomorrow but make no difference come eternity. 
So here's how wisdom should then be described, and we tried to walk through this a little bit in chapter 2, that wisdom is better than folly, but wisdom is to be applied towards the pursuit of glorifying God by making disciples, making disciples. And as you aim, if your target is that, and that's what you're aiming your arrows at, then the wisdom Solomon has for you this morning makes you more effective in the workplace tomorrow at accomplishing the goal of glorifying the Lord by being disciple-making disciples. Because Solomon's not concerned with just simply helping you have a better day at work tomorrow or having a better return on your investment of time or resources or whatever that may be. He's not interested in that because he's told you already that actually is not where life is found. And he'll tell us at the very end of his book, life is found in fearing God and keeping his commandments. So we can't misunderstand Solomon as we get into these wisdom proverbs and look at these principles he has for us and think that he's just worried about Monday. He's not. He's worried about eternity. And what he has for us this morning is a look to say, look, Monday matters, but eternity matters as well. And we can't lose sight of one as opposed to the other. And so in verses 4 to 16 of Ecclesiastes 4, these are really the three better than ideas that Solomon is going to give us. What we'll see first is that a little with rest and contentment is better than a lot. That a little with rest and contentment is better than a lot. Secondly, teamwork is better than solo work. And thirdly, wisdom is better than folly. Wisdom is better than foolishness, but popularity will end. And that'll make a little bit more sense as we get into those latter verses in chapter 4. Now, if you're looking at your notes page, if you looked at the bulletin, if you looked at the marquee that went up and was was all good to go last Sunday before most of us got off site, you saw that the title of this sermon was Community. If we get to the end of this sermon and you find yourself wondering how we arrived at that title, you're in good company because I find myself wondering how I arrived at that title. Um, so as I got into the work this morning, this, this week and, and sat down and was beginning to look at that, I can, I can tell you where we got it. And it's kind of point number two, um, but I, I would probably give it a very different title. And so uh, we just had some fun with that. And there is definitely community in the heart of this passage, um, but it's not really the big idea. And what Solomon has for us, I think, is best captured by these three better than principles that he's going to walk us through. A little with rest and contentment is better than a lot. Teamwork is better than solo work. And wisdom is better than folly. But popularity will end. So let's pray. And we'll hop into the text together. God, we just want to quiet ourselves here in these moments and ask that that you would come and be our teacher, that you would help us understand what it is that you wrote through Solomon. That as you moved through all of his life experience, all of his reflection on his life experience, all of his observation of others' life experience, as you moved in his heart and led him to write these words, help us to see how you also had us in mind. 
and how these words weren't written to us directly, but they were most certainly written for us. But God, I pray that you would also help us to not reduce these principles of wisdom to just ways to have a better Monday to Friday, but ways to better aim our focus and our attention and the direction of our lives in glorifying you by being disciple-making disciples. So God, help us to see how our work is a part of the mission you've given us. And most certainly, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see how these principles allow us to be more effective at work, but how that makes us more effective at the mission you've given us. God, please guard us from the traps that are all around us in culture that'll just say um, that, that, that we just need to work hard and we need to get a bunch of stuff and we need to have um, our lives defined by what's parked in the driveway or maybe what's down at the dock or, or, or all of those things that we can at times see a definition of abundance being given. But God, that's not how you define abundance. It's certainly not the abundant life Jesus came to give. So God, help us to see and understand where life's purpose is found, where, where meaning is found, and how what we look at in the text this morning can be leveraged to be that much more purposeful and that much more meaningful in pursuing the things that actually matter most. So we pray that you would just come and work to that end in us. And we ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, in verse 4, we begin to turn our attention to this better than principle that a little with rest and contentment is better than a lot. Let's go to the text and let's just read um, verses 4 to 6 because that's where we're going to see that together. What happens in verse 7 and verse 8 is Solomon's going to begin to illustrate what he's just told us. So let's go to verses 4 to 6. Let's read that. We'll kind of hop into that. We'll figure out what he's saying. And then we'll dive into the illustration he uses to help us make sense of what he has just said. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. And so there you go. You have this better than principle expressed in verses 4 to 6 of Ecclesiastes 4 that I think can be summarized a little with rest and contentment is better than a lot. So let's go back to verse 4. Let's look at what Solomon said. Maybe kind of dive a little bit deeper into his argument because he's going to essentially be giving us a punch 
counterpunch type of way of understanding work and the wisdom that he wants us to apply to our work. Go firstly to verse 4. He begins by addressing the source and root for why men are working so hard. Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. Solomon's telling us that envy drives hard work, but that envy is never going to satisfy. He continues by telling us this also is vanity. If you're just joining us and you haven't heard me define what Solomon means by the word vanity, he uses it uh, dozens of times throughout this entire book. What he has in mind when he uses the word vanity is, is something that has the, 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 the appearance of structure and form, but is completely without structure. So think of the breath that you breathe on a cold morning that you see exhaling from your lungs. It looks like there's something there, but it immediately disappears appears. Think of what you would try and do if you were just absolutely hungry, it had been a long day, you weren't able to eat lunch at all, breakfast might have been light, and you're really looking forward to getting home to eating dinner. If dinner that evening was just a bunch of cotton candy, that's vanity because it's not going to satisfy. It may have the appearance of form, but what happens when that hits your tongue? It immediately dissolves, and it's not even going to give you the, 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 the fake feeling of hunger because it's going to take up no space. It's vanity. It's meaningless. It has no substance to it. And Solomon's using this word on repeat to describe what happens when we place or pursue different things in life as what would become an ultimate objective. So here he's telling us if your ultimate objective is just to have more toys in the driveway and a bigger house and more square footage and a better bank account or the perfect kids or whatever that may be, you're going to strive and work your guts out for that, but you're going to find that at the end of life it actually doesn't satisfy. It's not going to satisfy, and you're going to find that you've just expended all of your days and energy at what really didn't matter. Furthermore, it's a striving after the wind. You're actually never going to be able to wrap your arms around it. You can never catch the wind. And we would all look really silly if we went outside later today and just started trying to give the wind a big bear hug. Can you imagine what people would think of us if we were over in the park just trying to give the wind a big bear hug and people were just walking by or driving by? We would look pretty foolish. And the pursuit of trying to have more toys, having the perfect kids, having the big bank account, having the more square footage is a striving after the wind because you're always going to find somebody else that has something bigger or better than what you have and your soul is just going to desire to go and beat them. But it will never end. And it's vanity because it will never satisfy. And it's a striving after the wind because it will never cease and you're never actually going to be able to wrap your arms around it and catch it and so really Solomon's telling us in verse four don't work too hard I mean that's essentially what we could boil verse four down to you don't work too hard now he will tell us in Proverbs 14 30 that a tranquil heart gives life to flesh but envy makes the bones rot Again, driving back to this better than principle of a little with rest and contentment is better than 
a lot. And so Solomon wants us to see in verse 4 that we're not supposed to work too hard. But then he goes on to verse 5 and essentially says what could be a contradictory statement to what he made in verse 4. I would submit to you that he is intending this as a complementary statement, not contradicting himself, but trying to counterbalance what he has just said. Because if you take what he has just said to the extreme of don't work too hard, you may find yourself at the conclusion of good. I'm just going to pull back. I'm going to let the welfare system handle all of my business. I'm not going to work ever. I'm just going to, everybody else can give to me. I'm going to submit forms into the deacon's account, all of this stuff. And I'm just going to be real lazy. Well, he's got a few things to say about that so that we don't swing to that side. So he's punch counterpunching his own argument here. And he goes on to verse 5 and says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So Solomon wants us to see there that not working is foolishly devouring yourself. And he'll say similar things again in Proverbs, two different places actually. And it's, they're nearly the identical verses, and so I just put one of them up there. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest... And poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. If we would boil down verse 5, Solomon's saying, work hard. Now, he just told us in verse 4, don't work too hard. He's come back in verse 5 and said, work hard. Again, driving us back to this better than principle of what are we working for? What actually is our goal? What are we aiming at? And we see that a little with rest and contentment is better than a lot. Time's not going to permit us this morning to summarize all of what the New Testament um, or perhaps the, the broader 66 books of the Bible have to say about work. But if I were to look at work in a broad perspective of what the Bible has to say, we see in Genesis 2 verse 15 that work was given to Adam before there was sin. So work is not the result of the curse. It was there before Adam and Eve sinned. Adam was to work the garden and he was to keep the garden. He was to cause the garden to flourish. He was to cause the plants and the trees to grow to their fullest potential. Him and Eve were to begin populating the earth. They were to rule and subdue it. It is all given as commands before sin ever enters into the world. And then sin fractures all of that and work becomes much more difficult but it is still something that is a gift of God to us, not a result of the curse, not a result of sin. And if we were to fast forward and maybe just try to helpfully understand uh, a little bit of what the New Testament says about work, I think there's three big ideas that the New Testament gives us. One is, is that we work as an act of worship. We work as an act of worship. And so where we had our first series goal that we would see all areas of life as opportunities to worship, work most certainly falls into that. And you and I are to see work as an opportunity to worship. And we're told in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. You have a human boss, but Paul is telling you, you actually don't need to work to please the human boss. You need to work to honor and glorify the divine boss. 
have that be your goal. And I think the implication there is pretty obvious that if you're working to honor and glorify the Lord, the human boss is probably a-okay with your job performance. And so one aspect of work as the New Testament gives it to us is that it's an act of worship. Another aspect of work in the New Testament is that you and I work to be a blessing to other people. In Acts 20, Paul's gathered the Ephesian elders to himself. They're having a tearful goodbye on the beach. He's probably fairly certain that he is never going to see these men again. And he begins to give them some final instruction. And at one point says to them, look, I worked hard when I was with you. And I did because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And Paul's telling them, look, I, I, I worked. He was a tent maker by trade. I think what you can see through most of the places and the cities and towns that he went to as he was establishing churches is that he was working as a tent maker and preaching the gospel and planting churches. And he did so so that he could be a blessing because it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And the other aspect of work is really kind of the backside of that is that we work to not be a burden. So we work as an act of worship, we work as a blessing or to be a blessing so that we may have something to give to those who may have need, but we also work to not be a burden and we don't just sit on our hands and wait for other people to care for our needs. Again, Paul specifically speaks to this in 2 Thessalonians 3, and he says this, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And so there's this, this threefold aspect that we can begin to draw out in, of the New Testament in regards to work, that we work as an act of worship, punching the clock. Solomon has told us time and time again that it's actually a gift. So when you clock in tomorrow morning, thank the Lord for the ability to work and the gift of work that he's given you. But then while you're there, you work as an act of worship. You work so that you can be a blessing to others and you work to not be a burden to others. And that's part of why in verse 5 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon is just saying, work hard. He's saying, look, uh, the fool folds his hands and f- devours himself. And so the, the response to not envying your neighbor and not putting in all of your time to try to better up or one-up those down the street is not sitting on your hands in idleness, but it's this better-than principle of a little with rest and contentment is better than a lot. And then we see that specifically drawn out in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toiling after the wind. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toiling after the wind. One pastor, in, in really paraphrasing this verse, said this, um, Rather than putting two hands in for 80 hours a week, why don't you put in 40 hours with one hand and enjoy some ice cream with the other? A little with rest and contentment is better than a lot. And he says, look, better is one hand of quietness. That word quietness can be understood to be peace, security, 
It's just a, it's a, it's a feeling of, of settledness for where the Lord has you and what he has given to you. It's the opposite of trying to chase everybody around you and better than them with possessions. And so he returns with another counterpunch and says in verse 6, don't work too hard. So verse 4, don't work too hard. Verse 5, work hard. Verse 6, don't work too hard. But all of them really pulling in and, and giving us this principle of a little with rest and contentment is better than a lot. And then in verses 7 and 8, he begins to illustrate that for us. And he says this, again, I saw a vanity under the sun, something that was meaningless. One person who has no other, that's probably a, a spouse. That word other could be translated even as partner. So it could be a close business associate, but it could be also a spouse, either son or brother. So Solomon's telling us that this individual he's going to give us a picture of has nobody in his life. Uh, several commentators have said that Charles Dickens' character, Ebenezer Scrooge, is a perfect example of this man who has nobody and is just a miser with his money, spending all of his days loving what he has, counting what he has, being, real, being a real jerk to everybody else, and only consumed with getting more money. And so this individual that Solomon's going to illustrate with us says there is no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. And so Solomon identifies a threefold problem that this individual he's illustrating for us has. The first is there's nobody else in his life. He is all alone. And Solomon uses this in part to set up for us this idea that teamwork is better than solo work, but the first problem that this guy has could be through no fault of his own, but he has nobody. He has no spouse. He has no close business partner. He has no son. He has no brother. There's no heir for any of his wealth to be given to at the end. He's just purely working for himself. The second aspect and second error this man has then is most certainly on his shoulders. There's no end to his toil. He just never stops. And thirdly, you can see there that he's never satisfied with what he has. Solomon tells us that his eyes were never satisfied with riches. He is the person in verse 4 that is just trying to one-up his neighbor from envy and have a better car parked in the driveway and have a bigger house put on the bigger lot with the whatever that's better than everybody around him. But notice then what Solomon says, because after we are told that he is never satisfied with riches, he gives us this purpose clause and says, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity in an unhappy business. I think the words there are absolutely fan, are fascinating because oftentimes our culture is going to tell us that pleasure, that satisfaction is going to be found in whoever has the most toys. There's that bumper sticker, you know, he who has the most toys wins that then prompted everybody else to have a bumper sticker at, at one point that said, he who has the most toys still dies. And there's, there's, you're driving down the road, you can at times see both of them on a long trip. This idea here that 
culture will tell us that you are going to be pleased and satisfied if you just have a little bit more. But Solomon's telling us, look, there's no end to this guy's work. He was actually never satisfied with what he had. And he actually deprived himself of pleasure. Solomon tells us that pleasure is not going to be found in all of the riches we might amass. It's something outside of that. And it brings to mind and should take our focus and attention back to what he said in chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, and what he said in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, that we should see that the little things in life of eating, of drinking, of going to work are for our enjoyment, and they come as gifts from the hand of God. And this guy, this miser, was incapable of understanding and seeing that God wanted to give him pleasure to enjoy, and he was unsatisfied with anything he had, and his focus and attention was always on getting something better. And it's an illustration that serves to tell us that this principle of a little with rest and contentment is better than a lot. Now, to move on and contrast the guy who was all alone, Solomon is now beginning to walk us through this idea, this better than principle, that teamwork is better than solo work. And he goes there in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will help up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Solomon wants us to see that teamwork is better than solo work, and it provides a better reward working together than it does working alone. And he gives us three different ways to understand that and identifies three ways in which teamwork is better than solo work. The first is is that teams support each other. Teams provide for each other and teams protect each other. And so in verse 10, he tells us that there is support when you're on a team. For if they fall, one will help up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. There's support when you work together. Now, I don't think Solomon's just talking about a five-man basketball team or an 11-man football team or perhaps uh, how we might even be able to define team within our family as a husband and wife. I think the idea here is don't isolate yourself from other people, but allow for yourself to encourage and support them and allow for them to support and encourage you, it makes a lot of natural sense for that to work in the relationship of a husband and wife, but it works within the relationship of friends. Some of you may have best friends that will do every one of those things for you, and they are gifts to you and in your life. And that's just what Solomon's wanting us to see. There's a lot of different ways that this idea of teamwork is better than solo work applies and can be seen throughout our life. But there's support when you fall. 
Here, he tells us the context is probably falling on a journey and being lifted up from the ground. It could be an emotional fall. It could just be a really hard day and you need somebody to talk to. Well, there's support. Teams provide for each other. There in the context of a journey, you have two people um, probably traveling, maybe even, maybe even um, shepherding their flocks around, and nightfall would come, and there would be cooler temperatures, and so they would lie next to each other, and there would be warmth. And there's not a direct implication or application here to marriage, but it certainly has its understanding there as well. But there's provision on teams. And then there's protection as well. If you're just flying solo, you're very easily defeated, but if you have a partner, or even better, three, there's protection, and teamwork is better than solo work. Well, the last better than principle that Solomon gives us is wisdom is better than folly, but popularity will end. Wisdom is better than folly, but popularity will end, and we're going to understand how those things make sense together as we hop in and look at verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So there's the first part of our better than. Wisdom is better than folly. It was better to be an, a young and poor wise kid than an old and foolish king who had stopped taking counsel and more than likely lost the allegiance and the hearts of his people. Solomon's telling us that that's the scenario here. You've got a king who's just reached a point in his old age where he's unwilling to take any advice. He's unwilling to listen to any of his advisors and he has just lost allegiance of his people. He's lost their hearts. They're no longer following him. And so it is actually better to be a young kid who is willing to listen and has the wisdom to do so than an old and foolish king. And in verse 14 he continues, For he, the young kid, went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. So he's not just a poor and wise youth, he was also an inmate. He was also a prisoner. Whether it was like Joseph and he was falsely accused and thrown in prison, or whether he had done something that landed him rightfully behind the cell, we're not told, but Solomon's telling us it's actually better to be wise in prison and poor than to be old, foolish, and unwilling to listen. But he continues in verse 15. I saw all the living who move, out about, move about under the sun, along with that youth. Now, some of your Bibles are going to say a second youth or a second young lad, depending on the translation that you have. And there's, there's a little bit of disagreement in the text. I, I think the idea here is indeed that he is now introducing a third character to the scene. And so you've got the old and foolish king. You've got the, you've got the poor, wise prisoner who took the king's place, and now you've got a third character that's just been introduced. Along with that third character, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him, and surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. And I think you begin to maybe see where our better than principle gets its, um, 
more full understanding that wisdom is better than folly, but popularity will end. And Solomon is saying, look, it's better to be wise and young and poor and imprisoned than to be sitting on the throne and unwilling to listen and heed advice. And so that, that wise, young, prisoner, poor lad took the king's place. But there was another lad right behind him who captured the hearts of the people and took his place. And popularity will end. And it's also a vanity. Solomon, I think, wants us to understand that why, yes, it's better to be wise at your job than foolish at your job. And if for all the right reasons you have aspirations to be the CEO at your company, wisdom will help you arrive there. But one day there's going to be another CEO that objective of reaching the highest spot in whatever corporation or structure that you find yourself in is not in and of itself going to last because someday you're going to be replaced. And so if all you do is aim your arrows at just climbing the corporate ladder, you may get there and wisdom will help you get there. But you're going to find that it doesn't satisfy and it doesn't last. And we see this in our culture all over the place. So um, at some point, there will be a 46th president. We don't know when that point is, four years, eight years, we don't know. But at some point, if, if kind of the status quo stays and there's not like a nuclear bomb or anything and the landscape of America widely changes, there will be another election. We'll have another president. And so Trump was able to grab all of the electoral votes needed to be sworn into office. And at some point in the near future, four, eight years, however long from now, somebody else will do that. And that position will be occupied by somebody else. At some point, no matter how great we think the iPhone is right now, somebody will create something better. It might even be Apple, and then all we're going to see and hear is how terrible our iPhone is and why we need to go buy the next device that has been created. And Apple's brilliant at this. They release like two devices a year, and all they do for about six, eight months is tell you why the device you currently have is worth throwing in the garbage and why you need to buy their next one. The popularity will end. There's always going to be something that comes Behind it, I was really fascinated by this this week. I was doing some research on this and found this out. Um, those of you that, that know and have heard of Facebook, which is perhaps the largest online website in the world, um, its founder was a Harvard student by the name of Mark Zuckerberg, who basically created the entire site in his dorm room and then turned it into this billion-dollar company. Well, a couple years ago, he took that company public, and he did an IPO, and then he began to have shareholders, and now he's got to have a board that tells him what to do on behalf of the shareholders and all of this stuff. This week, his shareholders filed a claim to the board saying, we want Zuckerberg out. It's just amazing. Two, three years after he takes the company public, his shareholders, citing the fact that he has policies or the board has policies that are not shareholder friendly and they're not making enough money as shareholders, they want somebody else to come lead Facebook because they want more money and they want more authority and they want more and more and more. It's just amazing. 
just amazing. I mean, we, we see this play out in our world all over the place. Wisdom is better than folly, but popularity is going to end. And that's why these three better than principles can't just simply terminate on Monday. They've got to go forward to eternity. And they've got to be thought through in the context of what really matters. Because all three of these things, if your aim is to glorify God by, making, by being a disciple who makes other disciples, then a little with rest and contentment being better than a lot, teamwork being better than solo work, and wisdom being better than folly will actually help you leverage what happens on Monday to Friday, what happens in your home for what is the greater good and what is to be the greater pursuit. And Solomon has told us, even in this passage this morning, in and of itself, all of these things are vanity. The amassment of riches, popularity, fame, prestige, power, all of it is all vanity. It will never satisfy. But the principles that he can pull out of that can be leveraged and aimed and used for what really does matter and what really will satisfy. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would help us be wise people. Pray that you would help us to work with wisdom lead our families in wisdom, surround ourselves with people that can support and protect and provide for us and be those people for others. And God, I pray that you would just guard our hearts from seeing that any of these things that, that, that culture wants us to buy in, that, that they don't satisfy. God, help us see and really truly believe that what will satisfy, what has the structure and to support to make the sense of life is a life filled with its aim at honoring and glorifying you. And so God, in that, we ask for your help and your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.